Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Soko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Soko and Azekah and Ephsadamim. And Saul, the men of Israel, were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set in battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there were, and there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. For just a few moments tonight, we want to talk a little bit about facing giants. Now we're going to talk about facing giants in this life. We're not going to hopefully ever have to stand before a man the size of Goliath in some sort of a military formation and battling for our physical lives. But we will be battling giants in this life for our spiritual lives. And so I've entitled this sermon tonight, Facing Giants. But as we think about battles that have happened throughout time, there have been many great battles fought. We think about the Battle of Gettysburg during the Civil War the Battle of Waterloo where Napoleon finally met his end and was exiled. We know about the Alamo, don't we? The second time around, the battle cry was, Remember the Alamo. The Argonne Offensive during World War I was a battle in which Sergeant Alvin C. York, from where Nicole and I and the girls originally come from, where he lived and where he fought. He was a, a great war hero. Of course, then, we also, during World War II, think about the Battle of the Bulge. That lasted for uh, more than a month. And then, the famous battle in Korea of Port Chop Hill. Movies have been made about that. happened in April of 1953. The first of the Tet Offensive took place in Saigon, the Battle of Saigon in Vietnam in 1968. The Iraqi and the Afghanistan campaigns of our present time still going on even until today. We need to remember these great warriors for their service, but let's think a little about a little bit about some of the other great battles that we talk about and that we've learned about from the Holy Bible. There are men and women who fought bravely for God. They fought the war that God had placed them in to to fight, and they faced their own giants in many ways, didn't they? We think about Noah. He fought the battle of public opinion. We think about Abraham and how he defeated the heathen nations and the kings that ruled them. The book of Judges is full of godly men that came up and women when in a time of need they, they did their all for God and they delivered His people. Saul, in the beginning, was a great man of God. He was a good king. That came to an end. And then, of course, we think about David. The great King David ultimately would be a man after God's own heart. And he fought this particular battle that we're going to talk about for a few moments. You know, history reminds us of the shot heard around the world. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the slingshot heard around the world. As we live our life on time side of eternity, we're going to face giants. We're going to have difficulties, whether it be 
health issues, financial, family problems, or whatever the case may be. We're going to face giants in this world, and we have to be able to stand up to the test. Since God had chosen David to lead his people, he would become king, and of course God would give him a a very easy and peaceful reign over the people of Israel, right? Well, that didn't happen. He had to face giants. And as we think about this particular battle, it was likely the easiest one that David ever faced. When we consider the other battles that came along and the spiritual fortitude that he had to have in place in order to meet those challenges and in order to be successful, So like David, I think we need to draw encouragement from this particular victory that he had over Goliath. And I want us to notice tonight as we look into this account in history, our first point is going to be the calamity of Saul. Saul was knee-deep in a calamity, wasn't he? That's what brought about this whole issue that we're talking about. In ancient Eastern cultures, it was a very common practice when two Armies were facing one another that they would choose a champion from each army and they would meet in personal battle. And the victor of that personal man-to-man fight would be how the war went. The champion that won his army would receive the victory. Now the Philistines had a champion. His name was Goliath. Goliath was from a city called Gath and he was a giant. He was a giant of a man, literally. And he would come out from the camp of the Philistines and he would stand in front of his camp and he would face over toward the other camp and he would shout insults and and he would deride the armies of God and he would make fun of them and he tried to get them to come out and fight him as it were man to man. Well, he was from a lineage of giants who lived in the land of Canaan and Joshua wrote or recorded for us, he says, Joshua eleven twenty two, There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod there remained. So though they were not huge in number at this time, they were still present in the land. And as we continue to read about the history of these types of people, we learn later on in the in the Old Testament, that Goliath had some brothers. And they were giants as well. I want us to notice his height. His height is placed at six cubits and a span. That's not the types of measurements that we're used to in this life, but a cubit was generally measured from the elbow of a man to the tip of his middle finger, usually considered to be 18 inches. A span would be considered from the tip of a thumb to the outstretched tip of the little finger, somewhere between six and nine inches. So as we look at these measurements, Goliath was at least nine feet and six inches tall. He was a huge man. Satan still uses champions today, though, doesn't he? He was a great champion for the Philistines. Though he was an ungodly man, he was a powerful man. But Satan still uses champions today. They come in a different form. But he still incorporates them. There are denominational leaders in the world who attack the Lord's church, the New Testament church, which was established on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, 
and they do it with a great zeal. They want to destroy the church for which Christ gave His life. Paul warned us against people like that, didn't he? Notice what he told the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11, 13-15. Paul warned, saying, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. See, these false teachers had come into Rome, or excuse me, into Corinth, and they began to teach something that was contrary to the gospel of Christ. So Paul is pointing them out to the people. He says, In no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And much like Goliath, these champions are well prepared. They're ready for battle. Notice Goliath. He had a helmet of brass. He had a coat of mail and greaves of brass on his legs. The helmet would defend the neck and the side of the face as he went into battle. The, the mail or the metal shirt which he wore weighed 5,000 shekels or 160 pounds. The greaves of brass were sheets of metal that were strapped to the fronts of his legs and he would be protected from the knee to the ankle. The staff of his spear was comparable to the length of a weaver's beam or just under five feet. The iron head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron or about 25 pounds. The armor he carried upon his body alone weighed about 200 pounds. So as we look at this description, we not only learn that Goliath was an extremely tall man, he was an extremely powerful man. Anyone that can carry 200 pounds of just armor upon their body is a powerful man. But today's champions that work for Satan, they are just as powerful. Now they have different weapons, right? They don't incorporate the spears that Goliath had or the helmets or the, the, the shirts of mail or things like that, but they wield likely a very much more dangerous weapon. Influence into the world. That's what they do. They come prepared for battle, so we better be prepared, right? Notice what Peter warned. He said, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 1 Peter 3.15 And much like the times of Ezekiel, we need to stand in the gap. God has always searched for men and women of faith to stand in the gap, to take up the space where there is a, an opening in God's army, where there is a, a place where we're not very much protected, right? Notice what Ezekiel said in 22.30. He records, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. It has always been the case that God is searching for good men and women to make up the gap, to stand in the holes of the army where we need someone to uh, fight courageously. He's always been looking for that. More often than not, sadly enough, no one is there. But those of us who are there, we still carry on and we fight valiantly. I want us to notice again 
this great champion's challenge that he would issue. Standing in front of the Philistine camp, Goliath issued a challenge for 40 days. 40 days he would go out, morning and evening, and he mockingly described Israel as servants of Saul while he was a great Philistine, a great warrior. The contempt that he expressed was in reality directed toward God Himself. He called on them to select a man from among them to meet Him in mortal combat. But we notice as we read the account that that did not happen. The Targum, which is a book of Jewish paraphrases and commentary on the Old Testament, speaks of this man Goliath. Now, that's, it's not a, an inspired writing, but it is more of a, of a history book. But it speaks of Goliath, and in its writings, Goliath claimed to be the one who killed Hophnius or Hophni and Phineas. Goliath claims to be the one who stole the Ark of the Covenant and placed it in the temple of Dagon, their idolatrous god. We read about that in 1 Samuel 5, verse 2. At any rate, Samuel or uh, Goliath would go out and he challenged someone to come out and meet him in battle, but it didn't happen. Second or First Samuel seventeen eleven tells us why. Everybody in the camp was scared to death. They were afraid of this physical giant that stood before them. This man that was almost ten feet tall. Now think about that. A basketball goal is ten feet tall, isn't it? That's quite a height. The problem was that these men of Israel, they didn't trust in God to deliver them, to give them the victory. All they were doing was looking at this huge man, scared to death to go out and fight him one-on-one. They didn't trust in God. They didn't want to give themselves over to Him. The wise man said this, Proverbs 3, 5. He said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Isn't that what Israel was doing? They looked out at the situation, and their leader and the soldiers, they said, we can't defeat this man. That's what we believe. They said, there's no way we can attack someone that is that big physically and come out victorious. They had God on their side. They leaned upon their own understanding. Solomon also said, Proverbs 30 verse 5, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. So we see this great calamity that Saul is faced with. And as a result of that calamity, we see David and his commission. Jesse, his father, sent David to the site of the battle. He was worried about his sons. He wanted David to go check on them, bring word back of their health, of their well-being, and he sent provisions for them. Not only did he send provisions for them, he sent a gift to the captain under who they served. And of course, I believe Jesse was rightly concerned with his sons. They were on the threshold of battle with their great nemesis, the Philistines. Of course, upon coming into the camp, David heard the news. He heard about this heathen Philistine, this uncircumcised heathen who who had all the men of the camp gripped in fear, frozen as it were, not able to go to battle 
not able to defend God. And because of this great fear, notice what King Saul had done. King Saul said, I'm going to give you great riches, I'll give you my daughter's hand in marriage, and I will free your family likely from taxes that would have been owed to the government. Upon hearing that, David began to ask some questions, didn't he? He says, now what what kind of uh, rewards can we get if we meet this Philistine in battle? It interested him. He began to ask some things. But as champions for God, we need to ask questions ourselves. We do not need to just simply listen and accept anything we're told when it comes to our salvation. Our souls are too important. We need to, we need to find out, right? Not a single soldier in the whole of the camp of Israel, God's great army, would step forward and do what God needed them to do. I believe the, the mistakes and misdeeds that led up to this point in history was the result of living a blatant, disobedient life, not caring what God said, and I think their faith, faithless leader produced faithless followers. But that's how it happens, isn't it? We have to be led by, by men of faith. His brethren were afraid. The king was afraid. And the whole of the army was paralyzed with fear. I Notice as we read the account, we come to David's brother Eliab, and he is insulted that David would even ask a question, question concerning this account, that he would even come down and offer up himself as even a possibility to fight against Goliath, I'm sure, because of the great shame that, that he had, knowing that he himself would not do that. And David shamed his brethren. He asked the question, he said, Is there no cause? He realized there was a cause. He realized that the men of God who were encamped in that army needed to go out and fight for God. And it highlighted their inaction in not doing that. As the great parliamentarian Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Boy, isn't that the truth? All we have to do if we want to allow Satan and sin to take over the world, is for decent and good men to do nothing. Eliab no doubt thought, how dare you, my younger brother, come down here and question the armies of Saul? To come along and say that you would fight this giant? He mocked David. He said, you've got a wicked heart, when in reality, Eliab had the wicked heart, didn't he? Like David, I think, again, we must ask questions. We need to be aware of the situation. We have to understand what's being said, right? John admonished, John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And Luke recorded a statement that we all know very well. Speaking of the Bereans, he said, Acts 17, 11, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. They weren't just going to accept what they were told. It's too important, right? And like David, they asked questions. David's contact with his brethren, his willingness to stand and be courageous, brought some concern to King Saul. 
He had some reservations about the young man, didn't he? He didn't believe he could go out and stand in front of the giant and be victorious. In fact, he said in verse 33, For thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. That didn't deter David, did it? He was not going to allow this giant that appeared to him in his life to stop him. Often, I believe people who are not willing to serve hinder others from willing to serve. Saul wasn't willing to go out there and battle. And he certainly tried to hinder David from doing the same thing. I don't understand what Saul was thinking. At some point, a battle is going to happen, right? And he wasn't willing to do it, and he tried to stop someone that was. If we're going to take upon ourselves the roles of leaders, we have to take upon ourselves the responsibilities that come with it. I think Saul should have encouraged David to defend God's nation and God Himself. I think he should have offered words of encouragement. Much like Paul's admonition to fathers in Colossians 3.21, he says, Father, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. We shouldn't discourage people willing to fight. When there is never praise or encouragement, by necessity... There is discouragement. And that's what King Saul was doing. But David, being the great soldier that he was then, and the greater soldier that he became later on, reassured Saul that he was capable and willing to stand before this giant. And he offered examples of his defending the the sheep of his father's flock. We remember that. He said, "I, I killed the lion and I killed the bear. I took the lion by his beard... And he killed them with his hands. And he said, this uncircumcised Philistines, Philistine would be as the bear and the lion. He had great confidence, didn't he? And then, he boldly asserted that God, who made it possible for him to defeat those animals, would bring victory and deliver the Philistine into his hand. Not only did he have confidence in his abilities, he had great confidence in the abilities of God. And he knew God would not let him down. We can be reassured that if God is with us, we can prevail. James said, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. James 4, 7-8 through 8. Now we have to keep in mind it's not always an easy task, is it? Sometimes it's going to be a very difficult task. Though David was very courageous and and he was excited about being able to go into battle and and defend the God of heaven, it was not going to be an easy battle. He still had to put forth the effort, and he still had to go out and commit to the fight. Peter encourages us in 1 Peter 5, 8-9, through he says, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil goeth about seeking whom he may devour. He said, Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accompanied or accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We must never feel like that we are the only ones that have ever endured facing a giant, right? We know that others have done the same thing. The Philistines' great champion continued to taunt Israel. But this time, the future king would answer the call. He went out, he stepped before the giant, and the giant was disgusted. He was astonished. He said, am I a dog? 
Am I a dog that you would come out before me with sticks? Did David actually think he could challenge this great man? What must have been going through his mind? The giant, no doubt, was thinking. He cursed David and he told him, he said, I'll feed your flesh to the birds, 1 Samuel 17, 44. But how did David respond? He responded in the very way we must respond when we face giants in this life. He responded with unyielding faith in the face of the enemy. Notice what he said, 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47. Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine hand from thee, and I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. He was a very humble young man, wasn't he? He didn't try to take credit for the victory that he knew would come. He said, God will deliver you into our hands. He didn't say, my hands. He wasn't trying to take charge of the armies of Israel. He didn't try to usurp the the throne of King Saul. He simply was a soldier for God. Today, the battle is the Lord's. And we must rely upon God's power to bring us victory. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, unto all that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Romans 1, 16. I want us to notice because of David's great courage, his great faith in God, he delivered the conquest. That's our third point. To Israel. David did have great confidence in the Lord. We see that as this, this account unfolds before our eyes as we read it. He knew that God who had placed, in whom he had placed his trust was an all-powerful God. That he would be with him and would deliver him. And as the clash began, I want us to notice what David did. He ran out toward the giant. Verse 48. He wasn't timid. He wasn't fearful. Was he concerned? I Well, I should hope so. That he was concerned with what was about to happen. That he was focused upon what he needed to do. But was he afraid to the point where he couldn't operate in this world? Absolutely not. He did not allow that giant to throw him off of his game. And we must be willing to withstand the things we face in this life, right? We ought to take David's example. Meet those things head on. Run to face the giant. He reached in his bag. He took out a single smooth stone. He placed it in his sling. And he slung it toward the giant. And it hit him in the forehead. I think the the Scripture tells us, and it sank into his forehead, killing the giant. And he fell down face first to the earth. But you know, that's where he should have been in the first place, wasn't he? If he had been face first before the God of heaven, he wouldn't have found himself in the position having to face David. 
The arrogant, boastful challenger was dead, and once again, God was victorious. I think it is worthy of note that the Scripture not only states that David prevailed with a sling and a sword, a sling and a stone, but it also says there was no sword in his hand. And like David, we need the power of God, and all we need is His power. We don't need a sword. There are too many religious groups in the world today trying to conquer with physical swords, killing people who will not submit to them. That's not what we need. We ought to be encouraged by the climax of victory that was brought to Israel. But that can happen today. When our brethren and our good friends see us face giants in this life, health problems, family problems, financial problems, and they see us withstand that, and they watch us face those things, that's encouraging. Notice what happened when David killed the giant. The armies were encouraged and they did likewise. They followed David into battle and they fought for God. As we stand and face our giants, it's going to encourage our friends and our brethren to do the same things if we're faithful. God's people can be victorious, even when we face great challenges. If David had viewed things through the physical eyes of most men, he would not have stood a chance against Goliath. But when we read the words of recorded for us in Luke 18, 27, all things are possible with God. We need to keep that in mind. We're going to have enemies, small and great. We're going to have enemies that try to bring us great harm, or perhaps they just try to aggravate us a little bit. But we need to withstand them, and we need to be faithful. But like David, let's do it anyway. Let's be faithful. Let's continue on and not shrink back. There is a cause. Let's answer David's question. Isn't there a cause? Sure there is. There's a cause to be evangelistic. There's a cause to stand for the truth. There's a cause to live a righteous and true life which is demanded by the God of heaven. There is a cause and we need to face the giants. Of course, we begin our life of living holiness and being holy before God by obeying the gospel. Faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. Sometimes we get off track. You know, the armies of Israel got off track. But notice what they did at the end of this account. They rose up in a great fervor, and they advanced on the enemy. And they destroyed them. Chased them away. They came back to God, didn't they? And we can do that also. Through repentance, confession, and prayer, God will accept us back if we've become unfaithful. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation tonight, if you've been having trouble facing the giants of this life, come back to God. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.